Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato Podcast, I have asked Adam Travis to sit down with Brent and I to discuss Chapter 6 of Sound Doctrine, Envisioning and Achieving the End State. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Before we get started, I just want to share the quote that starts the chapter. Keep your object always in mind while adapting your plan to circumstances. Captain Sir Basil Liddell Hart. So the primary and most critical step in formulating an effective strategy is developing a clear understanding of the desired end state. What does the success look like? What is the desired result or final outcome of the operation? And here's a good point that Sid made. It's never a return to normal. So we can't go return to normal because a lot of these disasters, riots, fires, major police events don't return the community to normal. But we can get as close to normal as possible. So... We can't, we can't return to an identical previous state. And Sid goes on and he says, consequently, a commander must develop a clear picture of what will be necessary to achieve a satisfactory end state in order to provide a focal point for directing efforts to attain it. Without this vision, the operation will lack both guidance and impetus. So let's kind of talk about that a little bit. And one of the... The key things that I didn't really appreciate initially reading this is a satisfactory end state. So much our human nature is to go, it's a win or a loss. It's a win or a loss. And and we talk about, hey, look, you might just have two really bad alternatives. Like, what is satisfactory? And, you know, there's some examples, right? If an active shooter response primary focus is to stop the killing and stop the dying you may not catch the bad guy right the bad guy stops killing people and gets away and you're able to stop people from dying as much as possible then you won you can go catch the bad guy later but we so focus on a bad guy all the time that we're like well no you didn't you didn't kill catch finish you know capture the bad guy, so you failed. Like, it depends on what your strategy is. Any of your thoughts on uh, that? 
Yeah, Marcus, I think I think active shooter is a great example for this because you look at all these after actions from around the country and where agencies fall short. And the reality is exactly what you said. If we have done everything we can to quickly stop the killing and stop the dying, that's like a 90, 95% solution. Very seldom do departments take heat because they didn't effectively establish the reunification center in time or because the traffic control plan was less than ideal. What the community cares about is, did we quickly stop the killing, stop the suspect or get him to disengage, whether it's because he's been neutralized, forced to barricade, flee on foot, taken into custody, take your pick. And did we stop the dying? Did we render aid as quickly as possible and give everybody a fighting chance to survive that had a chance to survive? That's your 90 to 95% chance or percent solution right there. That's what gives you the signal through the noise. In an active shooter event, there's a lot of noise and a lot of things competing for everybody's attention. But if you stay focused on that right there, your your focus of effort, right? Um, that's a win. Everything else is secondary. Even catching the bad guy because the preservation of life is number one. We can go and catch the bad guy. We'll probably catch him pretty quickly. But the key is to get him to stop killing people and stop people from, from dying, right? Um, that's when we're talking about end state. End state doesn't say for active shooter, catch the bad guy and stop the dying. It's stop the killing, stop the harm that's being done. And then anybody who has been harmed, get them to safety, get them to a place like a hospital where they can receive trauma care. Catching the suspect isn't even in stop the killing, stop the dying, right? So that's part of as a commander, thinking about what's most important for us as cops, we chase the bad guy, right? That's literally what we sign up to do is you see bad guy, you chase bad guy. But sometimes that's not what mission success looks like, depending on how you define it. And I think uh, to, to dovetail off of what Adam said, and, and having had these conversations with Sid, luckily, is that the end state is, what do I want this problem to look like when it is over with? What, what do I want this tactical operation to look like when it's over with. And Marcus, to your point, it's never going to look like it was before. We're going back to a new normal. But somebody needs to be on the radio. Somebody needs to be broadcasting that, hey, here's our problem. You know, giving that situational update. Here's where we're going. And you can even say our end state is X. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's something that we do a poor job of in law enforcement is stating what our end state is. And look, it might be obvious. I get that. Our end state in a foot pursuit is what? Well, we catch the suspect. Our end state in a hostage problem is what do we do? We have a safe recovery of the hostage or hostages. But that end state is not always clearly defined by the incident commander or whoever is responding to that problem who is actually in charge. And I think there's other layers to that that we sometimes forget that maybe we take for granted or that we believe are flexible. So think about any kind of end state, whether it's active shooter, stop the killing, stop the dying or a hostage rescue problem or something like this. We also want our cops to go home in one piece. We want to keep them safe legally. So in the aftermath, the chances of them being successfully sued 
are minimized. Uh, having a sustained complaint are minimized. You know, our, our cops want to be able to retire with their pension intact. So we generally take those things for granted, but sometimes you may find that people push the envelope or bend or break the rules or policies when, you know, there's going to be a tomorrow, right? So there's going to be a tomorrow and we want our people to be in good standing so they can continue living their lives and serving their communities and the roles that we're in. And sometimes I think we neglect that as part of defining our end state. We're so mission focused that sometimes we forget there's also going to be an aftermath that could be weeks, months, years afterwards that our cops, our departments are going to have to live with. And so we don't want to neglect that as part of the end state discussion. One of the things I wanted to, to touch on is this, you know, as Travis was talking and, and when you said, uh, you know, fortunately you were able to to learn from Sid, uh, I know that you guys had a lot of uh, of the tactics based and, and philosophical based conversations, but the one conversation um, that I had with Sid regarding in-state didn't really have much to do with, with tactics as much. He said that the whole idea of in-state, it works um, in tactics and tactical situations. He goes, but none of this stuff matters if you can't apply it in your personal life. And that was something that uh, I've mentioned before that I'll always be thankful to him for and taking the whole idea and the concept of in-state and applying it um, in your personal life, as well as in your professional life, as well as in tactical situations. And that was one big takeaway I had. And, and when you said that, it, it instantly took me back to that conversation with him. And, uh, and I had a smile thinking thinking about what a life-changing concept the whole idea about in-state is. So for the listeners, it's obviously your tacticians, um, your cops, and but in whatever role you are, you can understand this concept and you can apply it in your personal life as well. I think you can apply it um, professionally as um, as a leader. I think that is one of the biggest concepts in leadership as well, outside of just the, the realm of tactics is being able to clarify the, the idea of your end state, your mission, your vision, what it is that you want things to look like, what that success looks like. And, um, you know, Adam, you've quoted before um, Kobe's beginning with the end in mind. And that it's a very similar concept in being able to uh, identify things and then be able to, to build it backwards. So I see that as a pretty common failure in law enforcement leadership. I think that there's a lot of people who are decisive and make good decisions, but it's a rare leader who kind of clarifies and paints the picture of, of what that end state is and then, and then works it backwards. So um, I really appreciate you guys coming up with some of those, uh, those real life examples as well. Well, and, and, and to build on that, you have to spend some time really thinking about that. We're using some really basic kind of tactical problems, but this applies to life. It applies to uh, something we learned that Brent has a vision board. And so uh, it, uh, the better you can define that and share that with your people, the better they have that picture in their mind and they can operate freely, right? Which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later on in the chapter. But does that, does that make sense? So we we really need to think about what that is. And it's not just the mission. It's not just the main focus of efforts. What do we want this to look like when we're done? And then you'd figure out what your focus of effort is, what the main effort is, what the submissions are. Like a fire response, you know, we use that as an example a lot because it's life-saving, right? So the first part is all evacs. Evac, life-saving measures, evac, life-saving measures. For law enforcement, once that's done, we were doing protection right? We're, we're 
preventing looting. We're making sure people have shelter. We're handling all that kind of stuff, right? And then, then we start rebuilding utilities. And then we start making the bridges safe and the roads safe. And then we repopulate. And then we go back to policing like we did before, even though it's different, right? So, so the end state leaders have to come up with that and really articulate it so that everyone kind of sees where they fit into that puzzle. So um, one of the things I wanted to touch on that he talks about is without a clear end state, the operation becomes an end unto itself. It's neither efficient nor effective. So we've all seen the inertia and the momentum where, where the goal is the mission. Right. And, and we use a real basic example a lot in our commander team leader class, but it is the check the box planning. And, and it's very easy. Think, think back in anything that you do, like, Hey, we just spent this much money on this resource. We should use it in this operation. Well, do we need it? Well, yeah, but we should use it. We got We got to show, we got to show that we used it because we just spent all this money on it. Okay. Well, if we don't need it, this isn't the right time and place for it, right? And there's always pressure to kind of do those kind of things. Um, sometimes the the end state could be hours, weeks, or even months in the future. So you really got to articulate this, right? And it's always going to be a little vague because things change as we operate, right? As, as we start executing our plan. So how do we do that, right? So we, we kind of look for what our focus of effort is, we look at the implications of what we're going to do, right? So a commander identifies and makes known the desired end state and attempts then can be made to identify those actions that will influence the ultimate resolution and implement them, right? That's it. So we have to have the desired end state just to even start planning, right? Otherwise, we're just reacting and responding. And the first component of that is, okay, here's what we want, but we need to assess the situation. And I don't know that I really understood this all the way or really appreciated how important assessing the situation appropriately is. And it sounds like common sense when you say it, right? Like, well, of course you got to know what's going on, but want to think about what's really at play and think about the people in your life or people you've known or read about who are masters at this. And with Cato and the community we've been exposed to, we've been exposed to some just superhuman beings that they don't even look at the problem the same way I do. Right. I'm, I'm digging a trench and they're like, Hey man, there's like a highway right here. Let's just do that. Right. They, they see the situation for what it is. They have clear understanding. Right. And the, the classic example is a young guy jumping over a fence and the veteran unlocks the gate. Right. Instead of kicking down the door, we turn the doorknob first. Like that's understanding the situation. Right. So we've got to figure that out. And we got to do that through what's called a situation assessment. Right. What are the dynamics in play? What ones can we manipulate in our favor, right? This is where we start creating asymmetry. I think, Marcus, for me, a lot of what you're talking about with assessing the situation rolls back to situational awareness versus common operational picture. And this is something that that I know we all teach, but, you know, obviously we don't come from, we've, we, we've all been at the line level. We've all been 
rolling into situations and we have complete situational awareness of what is going on. And then our sergeant is showing up and our lieutenant is showing up and they are trying to create a common operational picture. And one of the things that I think is important with the situation assessment is we're talking about analysis. We're going to go into a, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, but situational awareness belongs to the individual. Marcus, if you're showing up to the problem as a patrol officer, right, your situational awareness is going to be better than me as a sergeant showing up later, unless we arrived at the same time, than a lieutenant that's showing up a half hour later. And so it goes to how do we create that common operational picture? How do we do that? Common operational picture belongs to the group. Situational awareness belongs to the individual. And something that we do a poor job of at these critical incidents is painting that common operational picture. The, the, the poor cop or SWAT guy sitting on the three side is going to have a completely different lens as to what's going on as to the lieutenant or sergeant sitting back at the man post as to the team leader sitting on the react team up front or the crisis center team or the arrest team. And I think that's something that we really miss a lot of times is we have to give everybody that situational assessment. How did we get here? Where are we going? What's our end state? Or you can even say that on the radio. There has to be a voice of command. Somebody has to be in charge of these critical incidents. Hey, our end state is this. We have, we have seen one, two, three, four, five. And in my experience and, and, and doing this across the country, we do a poor job of that. So two two things to touch on there, and I'd like Brent to kind of share a personal experience he had. Um, the first thing is you can't overstate the importance of the difference in situational awareness versus common operational picture. And that's if everything goes good. So let's have something that's a little sketchy, a little dicey right? Um, somebody gets shot, injured, people are hurt, and everybody on that operation is going to have their own opinion of how that should have happened. And you as a leader, no matter where you are, are going to have to manage that. And if you don't talk about this before it happens, it's kind of shocking. And people have strong opinions. People have strong opinions about what happened, what should have happened. It can be a problem for you as a leader. Because your, your unit, your team, whichever you're part of, a SWAT team, a patrol team, investigative team, it doesn't matter. They're all going to they're gonna have their feelings hurt. They're going to think something should have been different, especially if you're in the command post. I mean, I never, ever questioned the people in the command post because I knew they knew everything when I was on the perimeter or react or crisis <laughs> entry team. I never questioned them. <laughs> um, but... We all we've all been at different ranks, right? And and Brent, you you guys had a pretty serious event take place, and 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 really everybody was okay. And uh, you had some new leaders that made great decisions, um, but you know that was probably what two years ago now. 
Yeah. And, and there's still guys that, that see it from that one point of view that they had and they're, they're emotionally having a hard time getting around it and getting past that event. Yeah. And I think it really gets to what Travis is talking about, about painting that common operational picture and, you know, going back a, a little bit in here, it, it talks about, um, once a commander identifies and makes known the desire end state, I think that and makes known uh, portion is is something that's kind of overlooked because even if the commander has has determined that in their head and they're not relaying that to create that common operational picture, I think you have um, a little bit of problem. And I, I don't know how um, how common it is that that that's actually being um, done and relayed. And I think it's natural that there's going to be some friction amongst the ver- the various um, portions of, of people on a call out, right? It's not uncommon for the, um, you know, the tactical commander or, um, you know, the incident commander to maybe be making decisions that is not understood by some of the people who are in, uh, who are in different portions of the team who might not have all of the information. And conversely, they may have information that uh, command may not have. So I, I've definitely seen instances where um, that information wasn't relayed well, the perspective wasn't, wasn't shared. And there's definitely some different ideas about how, uh, you know, how things could have gone or, or should have gone. And it, and it can create some problems for a team for sure. And that that's where, Having that situation, sit reps, the common operational picture, the acknowledgements. I can tell you, I did not come up having that as a practice where we gave routine updates, but that would happen. But then we made everybody acknowledge them, you know, all the different elements involved in the operation, which if you think about it is maddening because what if the rules of engagement change, the situation changes, and a whole unit doesn't know that and they commit your organization to a different path, right? And so uh, that's something we don't do. I can tell you on patrol, just going up and down the state of California alone and just anecdotally asking people, hey, as a sergeant, do you guys do sit reps? Do you make sure everyone in the perimeter acknowledges them before you start your search? Do you make sure everybody is in the right position for the search before you start your search? And, and it's not a normal thing. And it's very rare that I hear, oh yeah, this is how we do it. I'm I'm Sergeant so-and-so, I'm in charge, here's what we're gonna do. Roll call all the perimeter units. Here's your situation report, here's the want. We're gonna get ready to start the search. Very rarely is it that methodical. Sometimes it is. Um, Marcus, go ahead. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I think Brent brings up a good point is that we fail to especially when we start and I'm talking from a SWAT standpoint, especially when we start working with other units, right? We think we are the main effort, right? We, 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 in SWAT, it's like, Hey, we're, we've, we've got the ball. Well, what we fail to realize is that it might be CNT. CNT is on the phone. They're talking to our, our, our suspect, the main effort. And look, Sid has a, great article about this that 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 I, I still to this day resonates with me where it's not linear it's we're wrapping all of those elements of and and look in Sid's day we didn't have you know the drone piece but it's the main effort is constantly changing it could be right now that the main effort is with CNT. It could be the main effort as a SWAT. 
And we're not, I, we're, we're doing a poor job right now in tactical operations of identifying who the main effort is with. And a lot of times we get in a hurry. I think that <clears throat> what happens is that, hey, we got this warrant. Let's just serve it. Uh, you know, CNT can come in on the back end. We're not going to care about that. We're going to get these guys out of here. We're going to be, you know, code four real soon. Well, that's a problem. And, and, and it only gets recognized when things go sideways, right? When now we're like, oh, F, we just had an OIS. Well, was CNT on the phone with us? Well, no, we didn't give them the intel that we had. We didn't give them the information that we had. We didn't do one, two, three, four, five. Well, that's, why are we not doing that? Why? And so I think. Uh, go ahead. No, no, please finish your thought. No, I, I, I think there's there a lot of times, and, and I've talked about this before, it's the self-induced friction. It's the egos. It's, it's a lack of leadership. Where is the SWAT commander in that stuff saying, hey, stop it? Why are we bringing our crisis negotiators in on this warrant service on the back end? Why? Because all of the SWAT, you know, there, there, there's no reason for that other than just, hey, we're just going to get this done. We'll call them out. It'll be no big deal. Then stand by. Shots are fired. Now we're looking at some serious issues. We're looking at tort lawsuits and all of these things. Well, we should be able to stop these things from the front end. <laughs> Go ahead, Al. So I, I was going to say, I think what what it sounds like you're talking about, Travis, is this failure to use perspective hindsight. Hindsight is always 2020. We look back and say, oh, you know what? We could have, would have, should have, but didn't. Perspective hindsight is looking into the future. We're trying to control for as many variables as possible. So we define the end state a certain way. What do we want success to look like? So what are some possible barriers to success? Um, a preventable officer-involved shooting. Um, we didn't have negotiators when we probably should have had negotiators. We didn't bring armor when we should have brought armor. We cut a corner there, something like that. So if through the planning process, even if it's something culturally as an organization we look at, right? Because what success looks like occurs on every call, every mission, everything we do. It's fractal, meaning we can drill down. Did you have a successful day, successful radio call, successful interaction, so on. So defining what success looks like and then looking into the future and say, okay, so we've got this mission that we're on. If it goes bad, it's going to be because, and you can go down the list, right? We did this entry with two people when we probably should have had an eight-person element. We made this entry and didn't even set up a perimeter. We knew the guy was armed and we made entry instead of doing a containing call out. And if we had to resort to chemical agents, we resort to chemical agents and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's also the legal standing of things. Hey, so this guy was on the phone with our negotiators. He was in the house by himself. Why did we make entry on that? What was the rush? You know what I'm saying? It results in a, maybe a preventable officer-involved shooting or a preventable officer injury. And so when we talk about this perspective hindsight, we've all sat through so many debriefings and read so many after actions. We know where the failure points are. It's 
I mean, it's perfectly predictable. The one thing we learn from history is we don't learn from history. So if we're mindful of that, as we define the end state, we know what those obstacles are going to be. We identify them and we integrate that as part of our culture. We don't cut these corners because of these reasons. That's standard. Unless there's a strong reason to deviate, why would we deviate? Because there's going to be a price to pay. Either we pay it now or we pay it later. Right. And and you bring up a lot of great points. And I think the issue, look, you hit it on the head. We keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Our, our, we have operations where nobody is stating, what is the end state? They're running on their own inertia. I can quote you active shooter event after active shooter event after action reports where people are not providing leadership. People are not providing what is the end state? What are we doing here? And it's not going to end. I, I, I just fear that we are going to continue to make these mistakes over and over and over again. So how do we avoid that? I think I think when we look at we zoom into it. So let's zoom out to begin with. Big part of it, as you talk about going around the state, around the country, to different departments, is what is the culture? Are we trying to clear the board of radio calls and get through things quickly? Or are we trying to do the best job possible on every single call, every single interaction, every single tactical operation? If you define success as clear the board, people are going to go out there and rush and do a garbage job on one call to rush to do a garbage job on the next. Same thing with the tactical problem. Hey, we have an overtime concern. We have media showing up here. Let's wrap this thing up as quickly as possible. Well, you can do that. You can wrap it up as quickly as possible. But you've forgotten the other part of that, which is good legal standing, good PR, sound tactics, et cetera. One comes at the cost of the other. Nothing is free in these interactions, which is why it's important to have this instilled in our culture to begin with. And as we get into the, uh, the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, you can do that at a macro level, right? As a culture of an organization, this is how we operate, all the way down to one movement on a tactical operation, whether it's an entry, whether it's you know, a scout you know, checking things out and putting together a diagram. It's fractal, right? It can be big level, it can be small level. And then when we talk about what success looks like, one of the things that we don't talk about is, is there an acceptable loss? Is there an acceptable loss? And I'll give you an example. We kind of talked about this before we recorded, which was Minneapolis, third precinct during the riots in 2020. The mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, came on TV and he defined success at the third precinct as this. And you can go and watch his news conference on, on YouTube because it's up there. No other members of the public and no other police officers are going to be injured protecting this building. That's how he defined success. Now, of course, we in law enforcement, we look at that and we say, well, there's going to be a predictable yet possibly unintended consequence, which is these folks are going to burn this police precinct to the ground. So he, I mean, he defined success. He got what he asked for, but maybe not what he envisioned. And so as we talk through these problems and how we define success, there is there an acceptable loss? And that loss might be, we don't capture that suspect today, right? We walk away from the problem because that suspect is barricaded in his home. 
Maybe he's not wanted on a felony, whatever the case may be. Well, the loss may be we walk away and the suspect remains free for today. He's not taken into custody. Is that acceptable? Well, if we're in good legal standing, if nobody gets hurt, if there's a good chance nobody's going to get hurt, if we can come back another day and deal with this, if the community expectation, if that's something we can negotiate or navigate, then maybe it is acceptable. I would argue that losing a police station or losing a police officer or an officer injury or a preventable officer involved shooting, those generally aren't acceptable losses. But there may be things that we're willing to trade in the furtherance of trying to get the big picture successes. How we define success, that gives us the signal through the noise, right? Because there's an awful lot of noise from a lot of different groups, whether it's our own communities as far as the law enforcement community, the tactical community whether it's our community activists, whether it's just people trying to make it through life day by day living in their neighborhoods and they happen to be in the middle of a police incident because their neighbor went off the rails and committed some sort of criminal act or had a mental break, whatever the case may be, which is why the definition of success is so important. And it may vary from agency to agency, state to state, right? With the DA's office, views success as maybe different than your local law enforcement. The DA's elected, the police chief's appointed. The sheriff's elected, you know, you as an acting captain or an acting chief may find yourself in a position where you're making a decision for your boss who's appointed. And so that's why I think at a cultural level, we should know what success looks like. And that helps inform what at an operational level success looks like, because the consequences tend to be significant in both arenas. It's easy for us at a patrol supervisor level to go, hey, it's catch the bad guys, this or that. But the more complex the problem, the higher you go in rank, you have to consider other things. Now, safety of our people, the community, and the bad guy are paramount, but there are other considerations that you have to take. And and each organization needs to know what those are, and leaders need to clearly define those, right? So, So Brent has to have a clear understanding of what his city council city manager and his chief all are comfortable with in the city that he serves versus where travis adam or i may work we have to be clear and and those are conversations you need to have before it happens right and so going back to kind of that end state and the analysis portion which is kind of what started us off on our on our uh, conversation we have to analyze and break down the problem into its component parts to simplify the complex complex problems so that we don't get overwhelmed. And, and Adam already referred to this a little bit. A useful tool that's been around for a long time is the SWAT technique, the strength, weakness, opportunities and threats and again we're, we're using this in the podcast to talk about tactical police first responder events but in all honesty all these principles apply to life they apply to your family business all these principles are the same you can't say you're successful if you don't understand what success is you can't say that uh, you know you can't identify you, you don't know if you uh what your strengths, weaknesses are, your opportunities and threats, which are outward looking. And just the end state and analyzing the problem implies that you've done this. And so I think we do this intuitively, but if we have a novel event or a complex event, it's very easy 
to not go through this process, especially if it's a routine, starts off as a routine problem that we deal with all the time. We, we just kind of skip it like, oh, this is like the other 700 that we've done. So strengths and weaknesses are inward looking, right? So they, they help us evaluate who we have, our people, skills, knowledge, ability, stamina, our ability to sustain operations, our equipment, our ability to communicate. Those are all things we generally do better than our adversaries in law enforcement. Um, weaknesses could, uh, you talked about kind of Adam brought this up. Uh, are we willing to lose somebody? Right. Is, is, uh, what, what, how long can we maintain the public's will? Right. If we haven't learned anything from a 20 year war is that history repeats itself and we do the same stuff. Right. And our adversaries know it. Our adversaries around the globe know how to fight a war against America. Right. The public opinion war. You see the the fake news, all that kind of stuff. Right. So and then the last two are outward looking. Right. So talk a little bit about strengths and uh, weaknesses. What are uh, somebody give me an example where you identified a strength. That, that maybe was uncommon or a weakness that made you change your strategy and you're like, hey, this is a this is a big problem. We're going to have to do something different. A classic example would be your biggest, one of your biggest strengths is a bear cat or a pterodyne, you know, an armor. You have armor that you're bringing to a barricaded suspect, right? But on the way, uh, your guy backs into a ditch and gets it stuck. Now you're without armor. Is that going to change what you do, right? You're running a protest response or demonstration response and uh, a train breaks down and half of your mobile fuel force now can't cross the tracks to get to the location. You're probably going to change your tactic. You're probably going to change when and where and how you interact with the crowd because half of your reinforcements are stuck behind a three mile long train, right? There's, there's all these kind of things, but any, any other examples you guys have dealt with? I, I think what you, what you hit on is, is a great example, right? And then when you get into, centers of gravity and critical vulnerabilities, I think a lot of the times we rely upon a standard response, especially, for instance, if you have two missions occurring at the same time. You know, you in a big city or even a smaller size city, you may have two missions and you may have to split the team. Or you may have to split your resources or you may have to call in a second team. We've certainly seen it in our city um, or an event that's prolonged 20, 25, 30 hours you may expect as your default that you have the stamina to outlast something. However, you may have a novel event where, okay, so what's your backup plan to that? What is your backup plan if your armor breaks down or if you need a second piece of armor to be successful? Um, I think sometimes we, we assume things are going to go well. We assume this resource is going to show up. We assume that our, if you think about it, protest or demonstration, and our mobile field force is going to be able to move into position. What if that assumption is wrong? And so again, as we're talking about a lot of this in the planning phases, if things go wrong, it's going to be because, well, our mobile field force on the wrong side of train tracks, and if a train breaks down or has to stop for whatever reason, and our people are out of position, that could be a critical vulnerability. If we anticipate we're going to have a bike team, that's going to be a rapid response group, that bike team is committed to something else that day, 
for whatever reason, does that create a vulnerability for us? What is our backup to that? So our strengths and weaknesses, what we might be reliant or over reliant upon might be important to look at. Um, and then when we talk about the five things that are present at every engagement, us, our adversary, and then timing, terrain, and tactics, a lot of that stuff is predictable. A lot of that stuff is something we look at way before these events happen. And so if, again, if it's part of our culture, part of our training, part of our discussions before it happens, we already have these ideas queued up. We already have the slides, the frames of reference ready to go so that we can move more expeditiously through what success looks like and what the end state should be and what the obstacles to that might be. Whether it's a protest, a barricade suspect, a hostage situation, a vehicle assault, whatever that might be. So uh, let's talk about the last two, the outward looking. So that focuses our attention on the suspect or adversary and the environment. So those are the two kind of outward looking things we need to address, right? Opportunities, they attempt to identify favorable circumstances that can be exploited to our advantage. These are uh, a classic example is a window of opportunity, right? So if the bad guy comes out, but then he tries to go back in the house, are you going to grab him? And how much force are you comfortable with using if it's a barricade or if it's a hostage, right? He separates himself from the hostage. He, he It looks like he's going to surrender. And then he turns and tries to run back in the house where there's a gun and a hostage. Those are all opportunities that you you need to discuss and train for because you're not going to have a big discussion about that right like that's not something we're going to have time for that kind of an opportunity but could could be other opportunities right do we have do we have a, a pattern of a, a physiological biological pattern is a suspect going up and down emotionally physically hunger bathroom breaks water all those things are opportunities if you look them that way, right? Any, anything I'm missing on that? Anything you want to add? No, and that's something that should be part of our contingencies. And I know um, from stuff I've been on, it, it seems for us, it's pretty standard. And what you talked about, is a great example. If the suspect comes out of the house, at what point are we going to engage him with less lethal? At what point are we going to send a canine on him? Are we going to allow him free movement back into the house? What level of force are we going to use to prevent him from going back into the house? And that's going to depend on his posture, his weapons, his access to hostages, et cetera, et cetera. But again, when we talk about what success looks like, we define that. That gives us the signal through the noise. If the goal is a safe rescue of those hostages, if that's a hostage scenario, that's going to inform and provide a signal through the noise for our contingencies. Hey, if this is what success looks like is a safe rescue of those hostages, that is top priority, then our contingencies may look different than if it's a suspect barricaded in his home by himself with access to maybe less, le less than lethal um, tools or maybe an edged weapon versus a firearm, things like this. So again, how you define success really is what everything else stems from and what those threats are going to be is going to give you an opportunity to look at what those contingencies are going to be. Yeah. And, and so you kind of covered it already, but that's the, 
the threat part, right? So you, you just kind of gave some great examples of that. But those are things that we need to decide on. We need to, we need to go, okay, here's a big threat. A great example with, with a protest response, we don't want them to go this direction, right? Like if, if they go this way, it's going to be a big problem. Or we have a guy with a gun running. We don't want to run towards the school. We want them to run away from the school, right? There's terrain things we can do where we can minimize that threat. Now, one of the cool things we're going to get in the center of gravity here is it's not just eliminate it, which would be great, but you can just diminish it, right? So, so the, the skillful leader goes, hey, I may not be able to solve this all the way, but I can lessen it, right? I can lessen it. Like a great example is spike strips. Do spike strips stop cars? They don't. But what do they do? They diminish a center of gravity, which is the adversary suspect's ability to, to move, right? We want to limit their movement to keep our problem from getting smaller. I mean, from getting bigger. So if you can't stop them or prevent them from being in the car, can you slow them down? All right. So the next step we, he talks about in, in chapter six of Sound Doctrine is synthesis, creative process by which we attempt to integrate all those components into a cohesive whole. The relationships, you, you examine the relationships, estimate the impacts, is what Adam's just talking about, your contingency plan, right? What do you want to prevent from happening? And what do we want to encourage, right? So if I want to drive my suspect away from the school, what can I do with my people and train and resources to, to make sure it's I increase the chances of him doing that, right? So... Two critical factors have a significant and that they're if they're effectively exploited, they will almost certainly result in a successful operation. This is the center of gravity and critical vulnerabilities. And this is what separates JV players from varsity players. Those that can identify their center of gravity and seize it or a critical vulnerability win more often, right? And so a center of gravity refers to something upon which a suspect is dependent upon for success in which if, and listen carefully, because I, I really did not understand this and I could have done so much more as a sergeant, as a lieutenant, if I had understood this part, something they depend upon for success, which if eliminated, damaged, diminished, or destroyed will severely hinder an opportunity for success. So a lot of that times we're talking about their ability to maneuver, right? The better we set up a, a perimeter, the better we disable a car, the, you know, whatever, like that's all like one of the main things we do. So he goes on with a barricade example. So Consider a barricaded suspect. In this type of situation, the center of gravity is most often the structure itself. It provides a sanctuary that prevents the authorities from observing the suspect's actions and may even shield him from bullets. In order to defeat the suspect, this protection must be removed in some manner, often done with an entry, but may be done in a variety of other ways. Insertion of chemical agents may deny him an option to remain inside or at least move him from the position that he's in. Thoughts on that that one? I think center of gravity well, I, is huge. 
And that's and that's something again that requires thoughtful analysis. And whether it's the vehicle, whether it's hostages, because remember, you think about it: if a suspect has hostages, and those hostages manage to escape out a back window or through a vent, that changes everything, right? I mean, now you just have a barricaded suspect by themselves in a structure or in a vehicle, and I mean that that that's a game changer for the police department that's trying to work that problem. Um, you know, San Diego had a standoff that was 30 hours long and suspect with a long gun had fired at the Bearcat and attack cat was brought in to basically start dismantling that person's house until he was finally captured. Um, that center of gravity is important to identify. And it's something that you don't necessarily identify in a check the boxes response because you're kind of cutting through, again, a lot of the noise to, hey, what is going to be the game changer for this person? What is going to throw them completely off any sort of center of gravity so that we can create a window of opportunity to use our strengths against that person to successfully resolve it? But again, and I know we keep talking about this, but it's so easy to deviate from what success is because there are so many shiny objects in an operation. That if we don't remember and keep at the front of our mind what success looks like, it's very easy to be distracted as an operator, as a team leader, or as an incident commander. Because every question, every course of action should feed back to, is this going to get us closer to what success looks like? Is this going to get closer to the desired end state? And what are the risks associated with this course of action? Is, this, is it so risky that it could blow the entire operation? Because if it is, we should be mindful of that. Again, let's give up the third precinct. Let's pull our officers out because we don't want any more people, cops or members of the public getting hurt. Okay, well, is it an acceptable loss to lose an entire police station? If it is, then this course of action may be something we want to do. If it's not, well, that's a predictable outcome that maybe we want to avoid. Um, same thing as we're trying to hurry along a tactical problem because for whatever reason, trying to conserve overtime, it's getting too much attention. We're getting impatient. You know, this whole thing is nonsense. Let's just hurry up and get it over with. Well, that's all well and good, but what are the possible negative outcomes that we're inviting? The predictable negative outcomes, which is why you have to measure it against what success looks like. And if it's not acceptable loss, if it's not an acceptable loss to do what you're about to do, then you got to put the brakes on it. We have to have our ego in check, which is something I think that was brought up at the beginning. Your center of gravity isn't always just for the suspect, right? We have them. And, yes. and one of ours is to lose an officer. But but at a higher level in government, it, it may be something different, right? Like it, it, we can have, you know, we, we look at it from our, our lens. We catch bad guys, we make things safe, we move on. But from a higher level, a strategic level, from a city, county, state, federal level, the ruler is even different, right? So... So you've got to you got to think about what's their center of gravity, right? Do we win this battle but lose the war type of a thing? So, um, and dream. that and that's Marcus. When I'm talking about what success looks like, I know Travis. There's some pushback on this. There's going to be a tomorrow. There's going to be an aftermath, and understanding that is really really important as a tactical team leader, team commander, incident commander is. Sometimes we get so locked on to getting someone into custody or wrapping something up or moving it along that we forget that there's going to be consequences to 
to deal with tomorrow. If we do something wrong, if we cut a corner, if we deviate from what the rules, what the law, what the policies and procedures are, there's there's a price to pay for that. And this is why it's important to think about now, because if there's a reason to adjust your policies or procedures, now is the time to do it, not in the middle of an incident, because anybody who's been involved in a deposition or a lawsuit, if things go awry and there's a negative outcome, they're going to say, well, what do your policies say? What do your procedures say? You, to Adam's point, you still have to make sure your policies and procedures are up to date. You can't have a practice, a practice that is in conflict with your policy. Correct. Agreed. Well, and, the, yeah. and, and, and speaking of center Agreed. of gravity specifically, we're talking about acceptable losses. Loss isn't just the loss of an officer, the loss of a member of the public. But also you think about losses as terms of your relationship with your community. When all of us as police agencies are in a fight for legitimacy, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about legitimacy and transparency. There may be a social or political cost associated with a particular operation. If you shut down an entire neighborhood for 12, 20, 24, 36 hours because you're working a problem, there should be a really good why for doing that. There should be a really good want on that person because the guy's got a misdemeanor warrant for something. That, as an example, that may not be a great reason. The guy's barricaded and he's fired off shots. The neighborhood's going to understand that. But still, we talk about critical vulnerabilities. There may be political pressure that may be exerted by a council member, a mayor, a city manager, somebody who's elected or has status in the community. That may be a critical vulnerability that we don't understand or that we may not recognize. We're um, talking about fighting in another dimension now. Right? That, but that's the whole thing is when you talk about strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats, one of the in a tactical, strictly in a tactical environment, one of the weaknesses that law enforcement has, and we've kind of seen this play out over the last couple of years, is we all have, as law enforcement, political masters, so to speak, whether it's the electorate, if you're an elected sheriff, mayor, city manager, and city council, if you're an appointed chief. And it's important for tacticians to understand this is a three-dimensional space, right? There's the adversary and there's the police, but there's also other factors that come into play that may be a critical vulnerability that we at least need to acknowledge. That certain right. resources, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example from a demonstration protest environment. If let's say there's a protest that we expect to go awry, and as a contingency, we have mobile field force in the protective gear, the turtle suits, right? And we plan on those being our third, fourth, fifth option that things go awry. And then suddenly somebody injects themselves, someone with authority injects themselves and says, we're not going to do that because we don't like those optics. So come up with a different alternative in the middle of your operation. That may expose a critical vulnerability and throw you off your center of gravity. This resource was going to be a game changer and was going to change the behavior of our adversary. We are going to maintain a position of advantage. Well, now a, a authority, whether that be someone who's elected or appointed, may say, I don't want that look in this operation. So come up with something different. Now we don't have that resource we thought was going to be in play. It's like saying, you know what? We don't want the bear cat on this mission anymore. That may expose a vulnerability for us. That may throw us off our center of gravity. We were counting on this particular resource as a possible force multiplier, and now we don't have it, which is why we need to be as mindful of our center of gravity as we are of our suspects, of our opponents. Back to critical vulnerabilities. Uh, you, we've 
we talked about it a lot, but let's just kind of end it with the with Sid's example here. So uh, critical of the vulnerability identifies a weakness, which if exploited will create failure. And when we've talked about ours being, uh, you know, in the military, there's an acceptable level of loss and planning process in law enforcement. There's no acceptable level of, of uh, loss. I think we would all would consider losing an officer as a uh, failure of that operation, but some common examples, for suspects include lack of mobility, lack of relief, right? We, we usually can sustain operations longer. Lack of logistical sustainment, food, water, ammunition, and so forth. But because none of these is normally a problem with authorities, it may be possible to defeat a suspect just by simply waiting. It hardly merits comment, but to avoid unfavorable outcomes, we must also examine our own organizations, which is what you, we just spent the time talking about. And remember when Sid wrote this, um, it was not common to do a surrounding call out. That was something that, that uh, wasn't done. And so he's trying to say, hey, there's a science behind these decision making process and, and what we do. So let's use the hostage situation example. Suspect derives power primarily from his ability to harm hostages. Thus, the hostages are the center of gravity and the focus of effort should be directed toward removing them from harm's way. This might be done by rescuing them, but the desired result could be achieved by merely separating them or by neutralizing the suspect's ability to harm them in some manner. The suspect's critical vulnerability might be his inability to prepare for a tactical intervention while at the same time guarding the hostages. So again, now he's creating asymmetry, right? So there's a direct relationship between the suspect's center of gravity and critical vulnerabilities. Early identification of the center of gravity and critical vulnerabilities will provide your direction and substance for your planning process. It can become the cornerstones of developing and implementing your effective strategy, right? So uh, I, I think that can't be overstated. This is the science behind decision-making. This is what separates the JV from varsity. So here's one Brent and I spent a lot of time talking about. And uh, Brent's been nodding his head here and uh, jumping in, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force him to put down his peanut butter whiskey and uh, – Talk, talk about this a little bit, because for me, I really struggled with what a concept of operations is, because it's not a recipe that I can follow for every operation. It, it changes and it can be complicated or it can be simple. And um, a concept of operation refers to a series of actions designed to progressively promote the accomplishment of the strategic objectives. It may be understood as a scheme for orienting activity but without precisely prescribing what has to be done. So this is how you avoid as a leader micromanaging your people or your elements or your teams, right? And this, this starts at the top, but if you're a junior level assistant team leader or you're just in charge of a squad or you're in charge of four people or there's just two of you, this, it doesn't really matter. It, it, it applies uh, at the big scale and at the little scale, right? So it's just a scheme, but then you let the people execute work within that framework. So concept of operations involves a number of missions, bunch of tasks, right? Missions such as safe release of hostages, capturing the suspect, recovering property, protecting the crime scene, gathering evidence, all of that stuff is part of the end state, the successful operation, right? Um, but there's a number of things that have to get done to accomplish it. 
traffic control, containment, press, all those things. So that's where we get into mission tasking. So many of these missions can be done simultaneously, but some are in competition with each other for personnel and for resources. And because they're all tactical operations are time sensitive, some missions are more important and at different times than others. Your job is to help figure that out and define it for your people, right? And this is where we talk about the main effort and the focus of effort. And it's very important that we articulate what those are. Marcus, to your point, I, I, mission tasking is something that I think is very important for everyone to understand. Whether you're a patrol sergeant or a team leader or a scout or whatever your role is, you need to, and let's talk about mission tasking real quick. I need to be able to tell you what to do, not how to do it. If, if, if Brent is my TL and I'm a scout and he says, hey, we've got a hostage problem, set up a crisis entry team. I shouldn't question anything Brent says. I should just need the location, some, some intel and information, and I'm gone. The same can be said for patrol supervisors. Hey, I need an arrest team set up. Well, you should not be asking as a patrol officer, well, what is an arrest team? What does that look like? How many people do I need? What are role designations? All of those things. And that goes back to, to, to something that, that Daryl Evans taught me is there's two people that get out of the car at a critical incident. One is, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I need you to do one, two, three, four, five. Okay, cool. I'm on it. And then there's the others who get out of the car and I'm like, I don't have time to supervise you right now. Get back in your car, go clear and go handle traffic. Mission tasking is super important at our critical incidents. And it takes a lot of front end training and education for everyone to know what do I need for a crisis team? What do I need for an arrest team? What do I need for containment? If you can't mission tax somebody, you as a leader have failed your patrol team or your SWAT team or whatever um, you're in charge of. Yeah, and this goes back to one, just again, highlighting, this is all stuff you do before it happens. These are things we talk about. We do tabletops. We role play. We watch videos. Doesn't matter where you are in the organization, what organization you're talking about. Doesn't even have to be a tactical police problem. It's all the same, right? We talk about and And where do we get into focus of effort and main effort is, is the two things that help clarify those mission tasks. So if you're unclear as a leader, what should happen first, and you have these competing resources, which happens all the time in everything that we do. So Cato is a large organization. We have uh, volunteers and people that work for us throughout the state of California, from the very top to the very bottom of the state and everywhere in between. And they have varying perspectives of their role in the organization. And it's the board of directors job and, and Brent and I's job to kind of go, hey, here's what our focus of effort is right now. 
and here are the people in charge of getting it done. And then here are the subordinate tasks to help accomplish that mission, right? And so I'm just trying to give you a non-tactical example, but so the, the focus of effort describes the concentration or interest of, acti of activities, right? So everybody needs to know what that focus of effort is, right? So it's what the commander identifies is the predominant activity. In the beginning of the podcast, we talked about a fire response. So the predominant activity is rescue, save lives, right? Uh, um, we're always going to focus on that first, whatever version that is, whatever the tactical problem is, right? And then we have to assign everything else is going to be subordinate to that. So, hey, we need to get out there and rescue these people from a fire, flood, natural disaster, airplane crash, whatever. Okay, that's our focus of effort. Now, every task other than that is a subordinate task to support it. We're going to stop traffic. We're going to hold the intersections. We're going to stage medical. We're going to get the PIO. We're going to notify the hospitals. Those are all tasks to fulfill the focus of effort. And then the main effort that's just the agency unit or component that's been assigned as the primary means to accomplish the activity defined in the focus of effort. So where the focus of effort is used to identify what needs to be done, the main effort identifies who is to do it. And then all other units and components are intended to be support that main effort. So we could talk about that hostage scenario again, right? So the, the commander might say, the initial focus of effort will be the safe release of the hostages. The main effort during this phase of the operation will go to the hostage negotiation team. If an, if, if an intervention becomes necessary, the main effort will move to the SWAT team. Once the hostages are freed, the focus of effort will shift to the capture of the suspect, and the main effort will be the SWAT team. So just basic, simple instructions that commanders identified what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, as well as who needs to do it, the focus of effort and the main effort are concepts that provide everyone part of that clear operating picture that we're talking about. And then it keeps you as the leader from being overwhelmed by every task that's subordinate to that. And to Travis's point, that's why you need to talk about these things ahead of time before they happen. So then we kind of have two two parts, right? The task to be accomplished and then the reason it's necessary. So it's not just enough to say, hey, we want you to get this done, but we have they have to have an understanding of why their job is necessary. And Tim has a great example of this, and it's one commonly used in leadership, but everybody in the organization needs to understand how they play a role in fulfilling the organization's mission, whether it's the guy that sweeps the floor, cleans the toilets, fuels the vehicles, maintains the vehicles, puts batteries in the night vision, all those things contribute to a successful mission. So we have to be able to explain um, that. Also, if everything changes, you'll know if your task is no longer needed. For instance, if you're in charge of night vision and the sun comes out, we probably don't need night vision anymore. So let's stop that task and repurpose yourself for the next thing that needs to get done. So um, one of the key things about the commander's intent is that it's the glue of the operation. The commander's intent is the glue that holds the concept of operations and the missions together 
by promoting a unity of effort in fast-moving situations that do not readily conform to detailed plans and expectations. The assignments that accompany the missions take one of two forms. Specified tasks, those are assignments that are fully and clearly expressed, leaving no room for doubt or uncertainty. They come from a higher authority, describes exactly what needs to be done. That kind of, and then there, uh, there's implied tasks. Those are derived from the commander's intent. So to illustrate implied tasks, let's assume the commander is giving you a mission to establish containment in order to prevent the escape of a suspect. Establishing the containment is the task. Preventing the escape is the intent. Implied tasks might include assigning observation posts, barricading streets, posting sentries, whatever it might be. As a leader, you don't want to get in the weeds on that. You, you want to kind of give them that, that concept of operations. And you might have to tell them the resources that they have available, which may limit their plan, because we're all competing for resources during these events, right? And that's really where understanding how ICS works in these big complex events will really help you. And uh, I didn't really appreciate that until I got forced to be the guy that was tracking all the resource requests on the ICS forum in the command post. So I've got this unit here. They want six people, two dump trucks, and a bulldozer. These people here want 20 people, two search dogs, six ambulances. And I had to keep in, but then I'd look at how many I have. I have five. Well, they asked for four. I'm good. They want 10. I have one. So that's really when the kind of beans and bullets starts kicking in. And you do this on a much smaller scale than a normal patrol call. Hey, I have I have four people for a perimeter. So what what can I do with my limited resources? Right, it's, it's the same kind of deal. Any any thoughts on those ones, fellas? I think you covered it beautifully. Well, <laughs> that's because I read a lot of it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean uh, that's. I'm sorry, Brent, go ahead. No, yeah, no, I jumped on you, go ahead. I, no, I think, I think uh, even going back before the kind of the specified and the implied tasks, Marcus, and, and you're touching on it a little bit, but when you start talking about um, the, the components of mission tasking and requiring that a commander tells a subordinate what to do and why it, it needs to be done, but not how to do it. And in my experience, I, I see that that is something that is kind of a, a frequent shortcoming um, of leaders and uh, in leadership. And that's something that Travis has, has taught me in, in uh, years past. And he said, you know, quite, quite frequently in that um, oftentimes in law enforcement, we talk about um, how to do something, but not why we're doing something. And I think it, it comes from a little bit of a default mechanism that oftentimes those who are in supervisory levels have done the job and they understand what, um, you know, what needs to be done and specifically how to do something. And so I think they get very comfortable talking about that component to it. But I think understanding even that component of, of the mission ta uh, tasking and understanding what needs to be done and why it needs to be done and spending more time. I think the higher you go up on, on the chain um, within um, tactics and within tactical command, more important it is for you to be able to paint that picture, to be able to um, touch on, on those things. And again, leaving the the how to do it and the the nuance um, and leaving some of that that creativity, that freedom, that autonomy um, for uh, for your operators to be able to uh, to be able to to ask and, and complete it. But again, I think it it's perfect that it's it's 
a big portion of of in-state because it's again it's a it's a component of leadership of being able to articulate those things and and i see that that doesn't get done um that doesn't get, always get done uh, very often it's not second nature to to leaders and you're going to start talking about it's really easy to get uh, in the weeds and and uh, the nuance of of specific uh, specific tasks and, and i think Again, the higher higher you go up, and the more responsibility that you have for the entirety of an event, and not just one small component of it, the more you really need to to fight to to articulate this. You know, Brent. I think one of the I things think. that I think we miss from this chapter, we talk about explaining, you know, giving somebody a a task to do, and then the why. You also have to confirm they know how to carry out that task, because I think sometimes we assume that someone knows how to simplest task, shut off the water, right? That's usually a de- designated task. Hey, when you shut off the water, it's going to be you. Well, that person actually have the tool and know how to carry that out? Hey, I want you to set up a react team. All right. Does that, let's say you're integrated with patrol. Let's say it's just a patrol response. You're an incident commander. Does the person you're tasking actually know what that means and what the, the purpose of that is and how to set that up? So I think the one thing that we sometimes forget is we may task somebody with doing something, and they lack the skills or the equipment to execute on that. And so the one thing that I think we need to integrate into that is, here's what I need you to do. Here's why I need you to do it. Can you actually do that? Asking the question, that confirmation question of, do you, can you carry out this particular task? That's um, a good point. Because most guys are not going to want to tell their boss, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. No, sir, I don't know how to do those type of things. And so being able to have that, that relationship where you can get that, but... To you're hundred percent right. Asking that that level of an of an open ended question, and you know, not in a condescending way or anything like that, but a way that's going to get you an answer as can can this actually be done? And, and maybe there's a component of of asking for that to be read back uh, to you, or um, confirming that it's been done or how it was being done. But the um, I, I think it's a really it's a really really good point. Um, you know, I know that especially, especially early on in my career, I, I would not have had the same level of confidence that I have now of being able to, um, and I wish I'd have been like this earlier in my career. You guys have know, I, I, I've done this to each of you. Hey, explain that to me. I don't really understand what you mean by that. Um, you can be in a room and I, I'm more, much more comfortable now raising my hand and saying, I, I don't understand what you mean by that. Can you explain that? Um, I, I don't. I wish I would have had that that level of comfort earlier in my career, and I've tried really hard to create a culture and environment where you can have those level of conversations now to ensure that we are on the same page uh, of getting that. But um, it, you're right. So from a leadership standpoint, if you're listening to this and 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 you're um, you're in command, or you have some sort of a leadership role and responsibility, being able to ask those things like Adam says, and ensuring that you have that feedback. But if you're just starting out your career and you're the one receiving some of these directions and it, each of us, we're, we're all still going to have those things where we all work for somebody at some point, being able to ask that question or being able to say, I, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? Or how, how can I get this done? Um, you know, if, if you have the time to, to be able to do those things. And, and again, from a leadership perspective, hopefully those are things that you're spending your time building your, your training uh, to be able to ensure that the people that, that uh, are performing have had the, the the opportunity to to train to those tasks, and 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 my thing is, look, you haven't spent any time on the front end training your guy, and I understand. Depending on the size of your department, you could show up at an incident where you're giving direction or mission tasking someone. You have no idea what they know. However, 
as leaders, it is our absolute obligation to look somebody in the eye and say, hey, uh, okay, this guy's got it. Or pull them off to the side. Have that sidebar conversation like, look, brother, hey, uh, if you don't get it, it's fine. I just need to know, do you understand what I'm asking you to do? Right, that brief back. That, that, that is so important during these operations um, because we have, what do we have populating our patrol ranks right now? Who's populating our patrol ranks? Very, very young officers. Not, not a lot and of even our, at all. No. And, and so uh, we as leaders need to be aware of the fact that we might be mission tasking and they might have no clue what we're talking about because they're working overtime from a back half shift that doesn't talk about the things that we do. So just be aware as a leader of not, don't be a jerk. Like these guys just might not know. They don't know. That's right. That's give right. You know, training education, yeah, give it to them. And that goes both ways because if you have the people in a patrol setting who are, are very new and, and don't have a lot of tenure, Conversely, we're seeing a lot of people in leadership that don't have a lot of tenure and experience and and where they are as well, and they're new to their position. So, it's uh, it's equally uh, equally important from a from even a senior leadership standpoint to ensure that we're training these things and having um, having these levels of conversation and, and training. Well, and that's well, leadership and, and that's leadership and followership, right? Because we're talking about right. this from a leadership perspective of what success looks like, and followership is. You're as just as important a That's component right. to getting to success as the incident commander is. So understanding what your role is, you know, if you're a leader, you may ask the question, do you understand what I'm asking? What's your plan? And getting that person to think and get back to you. And if you're in the followership role and you've been tasked with something, hey, here's my plan. Is that is that going to work for you? And if they say, no, that's, again getting back to something we talked about 20, 30 minutes ago, getting what you asked for, not what you envisioned. Because right. a leader, you may envision something and not communicate that effectively. And saying to somebody, hey, what's your plan? Or being a followership role and saying, hey, my plan is this, is that going to work for you? And them saying, no, that is, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm thinking. That's what I asked for. It's not what I envisioned. That's really important because if the goal is not ego, the goal is success, you know, what the end state looks like, that communication is absolutely critical, not just from the leadership side, but also from the followership side. Yeah. And from a followership standpoint, what you what we often see, too, is ten, very tenured team leaders, sergeants who have been on teams for quite some time and who are experts in their field. And maybe they're going to end up with a, a lieutenant, um, a commander who is new to the team, doesn't have that kind of experience or expertise. So it is really incumbent from a from a followership standpoint, though, that, that they're they're leading up that chain of command as well. And we talk about leadership going down, but leadership can go up um, as well. And, and it's very important and, and necessary to be able to do those things. So if you're listening to this and you are and, and you feel you are experienced and you have a boss that isn't being able to 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 lead up and get that clarity going up the chain too is, is a, a skill that isn't, isn't taught a whole lot. And um, I, I agree on the follower followership portion, uh, portion of that, but it, it even then it's still a, a pretty strong example of what leadership can look like. So the, the, the chapter starts winding up here and talk about orders. And uh, again, this is something I wasn't really educated about until I read sound doctrine. So, uh, and I wasn't in the military, but 
How do you give orders? What are what are the kinds of orders? And an order is a command given by a superior that requires immediate and full obedience in the execution of some task. So these aren't requests, right? Remember, we're talking about emergency situations. There's a there's a chain of command. Everyone has a role, and and these are hey, I need you to go do this, right? So orders differ from similar terms such as instructions, directives, because they require immediate and strict compliance. While orders can be written, most situations, they are not. They're given orally. Generally, there are four types of orders. An alert order used to initiate heightened state of vigilance or preparation for action signals peoples or units that may be assigned a mission concerning a developing a situation. Alert orders are sent as soon as it becomes likely the situation may require the efforts of the people you're notifying or the units to give them as much information ahead of time as well as any concept of operation being considered. So this, this is a really um, an interesting friction point for day-to-day -day operations. For those of you, um, which is most of us, uh, part of a collateral tactical unit, whether it's mobile field force or SWAT, and they're like, hey, we got this thing, it's probably gonna be a call out. We're just giving you guys a heads up that this might happen, right? But if you don't formalize how that works out, because I did not, uh, some people show up at the station, right? Because there was uh, there was too much ambiguity in how we communicated that out. Um, wasn't clear that it was an alert order. Some people might just take advantage of the ambiguity to get their three or four hours of on-call pay and then go right back home because you weren't clear as a leader. There's all kinds of friction that you can create. So, so I really like the definition of these orders because, uh, well, I didn't understand them. And I just did some weird stuff, caused myself a lot of problems. The next I think for me, Marcus. Yeah, go ahead. I think for me, I, I, I've used, I used these as a team leader to really, and, and you just made the point, is when you put out a page, right, whatever mass notification system you were using, you just use, is this an alert order? Is this a frag order? You talk to your team members about, hey, here's the different types of messages that you will be sent. And that will dictate <clears throat> your response, right? So we avoid what you're talking about. Guys coming to the station, doing this, doing that, freelancing, all of those things. Um, and look, guys are going to thumb their nose at that and be like, oh, this is dumb. But bottom line is it gives order to how you are notifying your teams about what is going on. And I think we suffer from that in tactical teams because, oh, we're, we're doing this. Well, no, we're doing that. And we're, you know, things just, the confusion is something that can be minimized with something like a frag order or an alert order. Yeah. Yeah, very true. So um, the warning order is the next type of order, four types of orders. A warning order is used when it appears certain that some action or an individual or unit will be required, but is not currently needed. A warning order provides notice to begin your preparations for deployment, give you some information about developing a situation, anticipated problems, stuff like that. But warning orders will usually, but not always, follow an alert order. Alert and warning orders should never be considered definitive, 
since they're based upon incomplete information. This is that rapidly evolving dynamic event. Hey, get ready. Here's what we have going on. Specifically, Brent, I need you to get ready. So you have to sober up. Go get your whiteboard pens sharpened. Get your khakis pressed. Respond to the command post. So uh, as you start your planning process, you're going to have to update with more complete information, right? That's why it's so essential that we do briefings, that, that, you know, and, and complete the planning process. And then what, what Travis is talking about is the third kind of order, which is an execute order used to implement or carry out an action in accordance with the plan. Execute orders can be initiated in, in any of three ways. The most common is immediately upon receipt. Go do this. I'll go do it. This occurs when a commander gives the order and it's implemented. Second is issued according to a preset time. So, hey, once we set up uh, containment, so go set up containment, set up. Go set up the crisis, react, arrest team, whatever you might call it, where you work, right? And then there'll be, hey, as soon as H&T gets here, in about an hour, we're going to go bring a second team in to this number three side or something like that, right? So that's according to a preset time, given minutes or hours before it's implemented. So everyone's ready and they know when to execute it. Um, it could also be a predetermined event. So that's called a tripwire, right? So if this happens, we will automatically do that. Now, you already know this because we do that on like a shot fired, right? So, hey, if there's shots fired, we're going to make a crisis entry. Or if we have a window of opportunity, right? The suspect comes out and separates themselves from the hostage. Hey, I want you to know if he comes out and he's away from the hostage, don't let him go back in. Right? I'm giving an order. Don't let him go back in. That's a tripwire. And then the last one um, is the frag order. Used to modify an existing order by providing additional details of a situation or by adding or countermanding a previous order. Frag orders are very common in developing situations because as we get new information, it could change. So I want you to think about how important common operational picture and situational awareness is. So you're in the command post or you're on the number one side or, or whatever, everybody involved in that operation needs to acknowledge your situation reports because this is where frag orders can change the situation, right? So let's say, well, he has a great example. So why, why, would, I, why would I try to do better than Sid himself, right? But there, this, the frag order needs not only to be said, but it needs to be acknowledged by everyone. Otherwise, there'll be people acting on old information. So to illustrate how seamlessly these concepts work together, imagine a middle-class California family planning a vacation to visit their grandparents' farm in the Midwest. I wonder where he got this example from. The visit is what the family wants to accomplish and describes the end state. To get there, the family conducts a situation assessment. They can fly, take a bus, or train, or drive. As they begin analysis, they realize that each of those options offers advantages and disadvantages. The family enjoys each other's company, and the older children look out for the younger ones. That's a strength. On the other hand, long periods of sitting make the younger children go restless. That's a weakness. Because buses and trains follow strict schedules and the younger children would not enjoy sitting for long periods of time, those are eliminated as choices. Besides the visit with grandpa and grandma, the trip offers wonderful opportunities to show the children the countryside. 
as well as cultural and historical sites along the way. As these are identified, factors such as bad weather, poor roads are evaluated. Those are threats. As mom and dad continue to analyze the various factors, a plan begins to come together. This synthesis takes into account dynamics that include not only pleasure, but the parents wish to show the children the country, as well as historical sites and learning opportunities along the way. Critical to the success of the family's trip is the need for everyone to have a good time. That's a center of gravity. Of all the things that might prevent this, a lack of money is most cru crucial. That's a critical vulnerability. Can we afford to do this? And the parents decide that driving offers the best alternative. Thus, a concept of operations is developed. Driving halfway across the country is a formidable undertaking and involves many important activities. However, the focus of effort is driving. Because dad likes to drive, he becomes the main effort. Mom will support him by identifying the rest stops and eating areas while attempting to keep the kids comfortable and entertained. And if it's anything like my house, telling me what I did wrong. Dad makes, that was a joke and a courtesy laugh by the panel members would have been appreciated. Still nothing. Awkward silence. All right. Crickets. Oh, thank, yeah, crickets. Thanks. Dad makes preparations by ensuring the car is mechanically sound, filling it with fuel, packing the luggage, taking the car to the garage, making sure that it's in tip-top shape. The mechanic not, knows not only what needs to be done, that's the task, but he knows why. Hey, we intend to drive this car across country. He begins by completing the things that he wants fixed, specific tasks, but while working, he tightens belts, hoses, clamps, checks pressures, completes a number of other tasks he knows are important, but which was not asked of him to do because he understands the intent. He also suggests a couple worn parts get replaced. That's an implied task because he knows what the success is. He knows what the end state is. The day of the trip approaches, dad tells the kids to begin planning what they might want to take for entertainment. That's an alert order. The older kids love to read, but the younger ones like coloring books. As mom listens to the children, she begins preparations by including books and crayons on her shopping list. The night before the trip, dad tells the kids to go to bed and prepare for early morning departure. He, when he gives this warning order, he provides as much information as he knows about the current situation. He describes such things as how long they'll be on the road, what they'll see, where they're going to stop for the night, and other things to help the children in their preparations. The next morning, dad awakens the children, tells them to get in the car because they're leaving in only a few minutes. That's the execute order. After an hour of traveling, the family stops for a break. Mom tells the kids not to take their things into the restaurant, but to leave them in the car because they'll forget and leave them. That's a frag order. The family's well on their way to a vacation. While each of the members has a slightly different idea of what to look forward to and a different perspective of how best to achieve what they want, all understand completely who needs to do what and why it needs to be done. Grandma and grandpa's house can be reached by any number of roads. They'll undoubtedly encounter lots of adventures and challenges, but it is the shared vision and common understanding of the ultimate objective, the end state, that provides the essential focus of effort. So it is with tactical operations. So I actually um, know Sid's made that trip with his family way back in the day and I know he did that many times and I know it didn't go that smooth, but the example <laughs> rings true, right? The example rings true. And if only I could run an operation at my house that smoothly.
any other thoughts on this chapter? Um, I know it was a little bit of a long one and it covered a lot of ground. We kind of skipped through um, a lot of that stuff, but uh, I really can't impress upon you. Uh, the more Brent and I talk about this specifically with organizations that we work with, the more we realize how important it is to really spend the time on identifying the end state. What really is success? Because sometimes success isn't, isn't actually the problem you're solving at all. And, and we look at some of these great thinkers that we've been exposed to and they just see the world. You know, it's why we're, we're such big fans of, it's not, it's not really what you think, it's how you think that's important. Right. And the more I can learn how to think, the more I can learn how to think, the more I can see the problems, the situations for what they are and, and, and develop the right end state, right? So uh, any final thoughts? Uh, I'll go uh, on my screen left or, or uh, right to left. So I'll start with Travis. We'll go to Adam and we'll end with uh, the ginger peanut butter president himself. Brent Stratton. <laughs> with khakis. No. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, Marcus, you hit, you hit everything on the head. I, I think one of the things that I took out of this chapter and, and, and when you're involved in operations is identify your mission identify your end state. What is it we are doing here? A lot of times our mission and our end state is obvious, right? In a foot pursuit, what are we trying to do? We're trying to capture the suspect, but there has to be a voice of command on the radio that is identifying these things. And having reviewed many incidents now, a lot of times what they suffer from is a lack of end state. Yeah, it was a great opportunity to be able to talk a little bit about end state and, uh, you know, it's always an excellent opportunity to think about, uh, about Sid and, uh, what he taught us and I'll always be grateful to him for, uh, for the things that he taught, but, um, specifically on, on this topic. And I think from a leadership standpoint, this could be the single, um, biggest concept, um, that wherever you fall in your organization, wherever you fall in a leadership or followership role, being able to really grasp this concept and uh, apply it, it, it. I don't think it's overstating it and thinking this, this might be the the single most important uh, concept that, that you can, you, that you can understand and, and figure out how to apply. And it's still something that I grapple with on a, on a pretty consistent basis on building in the time to stop and think through what you want that end state to be. Um, trying to make sure that it's uh, concise and it's clear and there's parameters, but that's your job is to to paint the picture. And uh, you know, I I don't remember whose uh, whose analogy it was. If it was um, Daryl's or Sid's or, or one of your guys somewhere along the way when we're talking about the idea of end state, we talk about uh, like a puzzle. If you're going to take uh, a puzzle out and then it has the picture of it on on the box in the front, you take that that box and you set it right there in front of the puzzle and you start putting it together. You don't take that box and, and chuck it and then start trying to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think in-state is a lot like that, being able to take that box, set it in front of everybody that's there working with you collaboratively. And so they're, it's clear to each and every one of them on what exactly it is they're trying to accomplish. And, and I think if you can do that from a leadership role, I think you'll be a uh, you'll be a lot better off. And, and again, on, on a personal note, that was one of the things that, um, 
Sid sat down with me and asked me, you know, what kind of a kind of person do you want to be? What kind of a, a husband do you want to be? What kind of father do you want to be? And uh, we took it a step further and started writing out what is it that we want uh, the kids to grow up to be? Not what do they want them to grow up to do, but what kind of people do you want them to be? And then had me sit down and write down, am I living my life every day to ensure that I'm trying to, to the greatest degree possible, create people that are going to grow up to be those things. And I think it's that way on a SWAT team. Um, from a leadership standpoint, you should look and identify what exactly is it that you want your team to be able to do. And, and are you training to those things every day? Like Travis talked about, are we really creating that type of environment to, to achieve that kind of success? And you're never going to get it if you haven't spent the time thinking about it and articulating what you want that, that to be. So understanding this concept, what it means to you and being able to, um, to articulate that, I think and articulate it clearly is um, something that, that protects you a little bit from so much of the, so many of the variables that they go throughout the state. Um, Travis touched again on, on how we're all different. Our organizations, our communities are different. And unfortunately in different portions of the state with different district attorneys and different interpretations of 835A. But I think the thing that you can do to be able to protect yourself and ensure that what you're doing is, is in line with 835A and is in line with good practices is being able to, to clarify that end state on the front end. So I think it's uh, not only is it um, an excellent concept to be able to grasp for success, quite frankly, I, I think it's your your role and responsibility as a leader to be able to uh, to be able to, to nail that down. So thanks for taking the time to uh, to talk through it. Yeah, and, and just to tag on that, even though I said I wouldn't, do not underestimate how important it is to identify the center of gravity and critical vulnerabilities. That is how you do that with a SWOT analysis. And before you're done answering those questions, you'll have a clear understanding of where you need to go. So if you're not sure what to do at all, define what success looks like, do a SWOT analysis, identify center of gravity and critical vulnerability. And by the time you get done that process, you'll have a real clear understanding of what you have, where you're going, and you'll be able to just, after that, it's, it's resource allocation. And uh, it's the same with everything, right? That's what Brent's trying to talk about. So, um, yep, keeps giving. Uh, again, none of us can highly recommend uh, get a copy of Sound Doctrine. It's well-written. It's real simple. If the five of us or four of us can understand it, then we're doing good. See, I can't even do math. And, uh, you know, it, it, and it works for life, right? Like, you don't have to flip through Instagram very long to see some influencer talking about these same concepts using different words, right? So to uh, enhance your performance in your personal life. So uh, again, thank you uh, all of you for taking time out of your busy day to uh, join me and tease each other a little bit and uh, go through the takeaways we had for uh, chapter six and uh, look forward to uh, chapter seven. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.